back to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. Today, I am talking to Rebecca Hunt. Her debut feature film project, experience, video biography, it is called Beba. And Niani Scott at RogerEbert.com called the film the, quote, coming-of-age story that Black American children have been waiting for a documentary that encompasses every step of reclamation of an American bloodline. End quote. Rebecca is the star, the director, the writer, the literally everything else you can think of. Rebecca Hunt, uh, tell me uh, all the things that you did to make Beba real as, as we begin this conversation. I don't want to shortchange all the things that it took to make this project. Thank you so much, uh, Jordan. I appreciate this intro. So I actually wrote, directed, and produced the film. I produced it alongside Sophia Geld, who's also the only other producer on the film. Mm-hmm. As we see you in uh, Beba, you are, I believe, in your mid-20s. And now I think you're in the early 30s. So this has been a years-long endeavor. How much of that, over that course of time, was spent, like, concentratedly working on this? Yeah, it took about eight years to make this film. And the, the actual visuals of the film end when I'm in my mid 20s but i didn't finish the film until like a year ago so it's meta i know (laughs) how now are you like the band who's been playing their greatest hits um for a really long time now and they're like i don't want to hear that song again for a while are you like i don't want to hear about me for a while after this are you like i'm feeling really enlivened on me right about now I'm not going to lie. I feel very proud of myself and of my team and, and my dreams are coming true right now. So it's unbelievable. That's incredible. That's un- <laughs> like that's amazing. But um, I, yeah, but also it's a whole lot of me. You know, the film is cringe for me. <laughs> but, you know, the whole point of to make this film for me was to connect with people. And so mm-hmm. the fact that I can... You know, so many people are resonating with the film throughout this, but the festival circuit, mm-hmm. which ended with Tribeca. Well, actually, mm-hmm. it didn't end with Tribeca. It'll still go to other festivals. But, you know, it's it's also being released now in theaters on June 24th. So I feel like it's amazing to have had all of the conversations I've had mm-hmm. around the film and to connect with people and have people share their stories with me. And that's awesome. You are now entering my universe. I am the lens, the subject, and the authority. Tell us, how do you summarize what Beba is? Because, I mean, it's a documentary, but it's but it's something else. Like it, it, I just want people to have a good sense of what it is you've made with this. And I feel like I can't adequately present that. Yeah, I am not the best pitcher for this film, which is really funny. <laughs> like, it's, I'm so happy that it's gotten so far because I'm not the best pitcher for it. Mm. But I would just say that it is a existential coming-of-age film and mm-hmm. that it is very honest. It, yeah, it is. It is. We follow you through, um, you, you know, the a process of, digging into the relationships in your like the closest relationships in your life like w- with your family and and how you grew up and and how your family grew up and how that influenced how you were raised and how the antecedents 
of of your immediate family, like, you know, parents, grandparents, great grandparents, the places they're from, Venezuela, Dominican Republic, how those past lives influence you in the present. And there's, you know, there's, you know, visual references to those times that existed before you and you participating in sort of like rituals of your cultures and there's poetry and so it's 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 very much like experience was the best way to say it because I didn't want to minimum I didn't want to limit it with another word that might categorically box it in I think that that makes sense yeah like I'm excavating my closest relationship I'm excavating some of my demons I'm excavating Mm -hmm. some of my heartbreaks some of my pain some of my joys the things that are important to me the things I love Mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. of that Okay, well, now for our dual purposes here, it is, of course, talked about the current work and then to talk about uh, work that has been resonant for you and characters that have been resonant for you. And you gave me like a whole little list of them. And what I, I you know, the fun of that is kind of pulling, th- finding the threads to pull through. Uh, a couple of them were Francis Ha, Matilda, Lady Bird, Poetic Justice. And what I, I enjoyed about all of those is that those are all titular role characters not just stars of the movie like everybody that is a star of every movie these are titular role characters which kind of lets us know that the whole universe of this movie in sort of a particular maybe an idiosyncratic way is going to be organized around the name of the person who is on the title who the title on the box and your your film itself you're the titular role in that as well tell me about making yourself the title character and feeling like I feeling a sense of identity within other title characters that are sort of like as sort of bigger than life in the way that Francis Lady Bird and Matilda all are as well. And Justice. And Justice, yes. My hair is still an ode to her now. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that, you know, this was a hard question to answer because I've never really felt like there was any one character that fully, mm-hmm. like made me feel seen and if Mm -hmm. you notice a lot of the majority of those films have come out like in the past 10 years not even Mm -hmm. I think you know one of the things that's interesting about the titular characters that I thought about it as you were saying is I come from a schooling of Mm -hmm. women not being the protagonists of their own lives Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I'm just starting to think now that maybe that's part of the catharsis of it is that I really have fought to be the main character of my life. That's right. Now, do you feel like when you started working on Beba, did you, was that a process you were cognizant of? Or is that something that came later at this point or in the process of, of making the movie? Were you fight were you fighting that fight when you were like I'm gonna make a a movie about my life and put my name on it well I just thought about that when you were asking about you know Mm -hmm. these sort of like characters whose names are in the titles Mm -hmm. but when I was creating Beba from the get-go I wanted it to help me build a life and a community that I could be proud of Mm -hmm. but when Mm -hmm. I look at these other characters like Francis Todd and I'm looking at when I'm thinking back to Matilda um, or Lady Bird. It, mm. They're just characters in which I felt fully complex characters, like mm-hmm. full three dimensional, even five dimensional, because we're not really three. I mean, we see in three dimensional, but our dimensions are pretty infinite, you know? It's, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And so 
it made sense that, you know, the way that their beings were captured, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, yeah, you are the name of this capturing of you. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess Beba is like that in a sense. It's like, yeah, here's the capturing of this existential experience. Mm-hmm. And here's a very innocent I mean, innocent, that's not the word I want to use. I, I don't even, I don't even like the notion of innocence really. It's like, it's something that I find really complex and kind of weird, but, uh, um, and that's a completely different thing. But I mean, I, I meant to say intimate, you mm-hmm. know, here's this intimate portrayal. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you her intimate pet name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I won't, I won't like, you're like, that's a whole other thing, but I'm curious about what is your, what is your sort of reflexive derision with the word innocence? I'm curious about that. I just, it's, it's really, I just feel, find it to be something that can sometimes be imposed onto people. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody who's, you know, came up with a Catholic upbringing and like what innocence meant in Catholic mm-hmm. households specifically for women was just, is just something that I think is mm-hmm. limiting. Thank you for that. That, that. That's exactly the kind of thing I wanted to know. So thank you for telling me. I think with with those characters as well, With even with another one you cited was Mookie from Do the Right Thing, which is Spike Lee's character in that. And with Frances Matilda, Lady Bird, and you, you cited uh, She's Gotta Have It, Nola Darling. Like, they're, they're all these characters. Even with um, with Mookie, he's, he's our sort of point of view character. He interjects into Do the Right Thing, and he's sort of our guide on this journey through the film. And they're all characters around which the universe of the film and again to a degree that's all protagonists but I feel like these are particularly specific characters where the universe of the film has to kind of bend around them because they are sort of they're out of step with the norms of people around them of what they would consider normal. Like Lady Bird is is kind of swimming against the current. Matilda is young and magical and doesn't make any sense to the family that she was born into. And and justice in poetic justice is sort of finding her way after this great loss. And can she love again? And Janet Jackson being just one of the most magnetic people that's ever existed of all time. Like I, I wanted to hear about sort of these characters that are inherently against the grain of sort of what is around them but also exceptionally compelling and that's almost a part of why they're they seem to sort of buck up against the norms because they're just they're extraordinary (laughs) picking these extraordinary characters within extraordinary circumstances fighting against normalcy to a degree in some ways yeah totally i totally feel that and even in their like subtlety like France, like I think about Frances Hot. Um, mm-hmm. I just showed it to my niece recently. We watched Lady Bird and then we watched Frances Hot. <laughs> Great double. Great programming double right I, there. I was like, maybe we should watch Frances Hot first and then Lady Bird's in order of them coming out. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like I'm showing you all of Greta Gerwig's work because I'm a huge fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was like, you know what? No, because she's 16. So she'll, she'll really enjoy seeing Lady Bird as a 16 year old and then yeah, let's lock her in let's get her in with that foothold yeah exactly and then you know because you know she, i don't know how much she'll understand francis hot quite yet but anyway <laughs> even with francis like i remember watching it on screen francis mm-hmm. when i when it came out and i was like a recent college graduate and i was just like oh my god like i identify with you so much <laughs> and then watching it like every couple years after that and still mm-hmm. even now when i showed it to my niece being mm-hmm. like oh my god i still identify with like 
the kind of person you probably became, Francis. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you can see her life after the movie. I'm going to Paris for two days. What? Why so short? <laughs> I have a meeting with Colleen on Monday. Wait, I thought you were poor. I'm going to use this credit card I got in the mail. That's not smart. That's what they want. They want to keep you in debt. I know that. I see documentaries. <laughs> well, good for you, kid. I lived there for like a year. You never told me that. Yep. I was there when Serge Gainsbourg died. Crazy time. Weren't you like eight? Yeah, it was the end of Euro Disco. I have so much to do. I think I'll probably read Proust because sometimes it's good to do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. Proust is pretty heavy. Yeah, but it's worth it, I hear. No, I meant the book, Carrying It on the Plane. I should probably learn French first and then read it in French. Undateable. <laughs> Watching her navigate life on screen mm-hmm. as this character where she's just like, Okay, I'm gonna go to Paris for a weekend, and I'm gonna mm-hmm. max out my credit card. There's like <laughs> self possession there, or just yes. you know, even though it was not like the best decision of all time, mm-hmm. it transcends judgment. There's mm-hmm. something really powerful about that. There's something really powerful about a young woman being self possessed in that way, and us being able to see it. You know, even her being like her moving to um to uh, to Washington Heights. Oh right. When you are in a sort of like artsy liberal bubble in New York, it is mm-hmm. a big deal to move to Washington Heights. <laughs> okay. if you're, if, especially if all of your friends are based in like the East Village in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. At that age, that's, that feels like the biggest move you'll ever make. And I remember uh-huh. watching it when I was, you know, younger than how, whatever age Frances Ha was. Mm-hmm. the film i think she's like 27 and i was probably like 24 watching the film and like wow she really did her thing <laughs> you know and so it's real it's deep francis high is, is is another well i think it's another sort of existential coming of age story of mm. a young um 27 year old woman who is living in new york and mm-hmm. is a dancer, kind of, but like doesn't really dance that much, as she said. <laughs> and she's just trying to figure it out, you know? Yeah. She's just trying to figure out what life is and how mm-hmm. she wants to live it. And what is it you you said, like obviously with Lady Bird and, and you're showing you're showing, you know, people the this works of Greta Gerwig. What is it about what Greta Ger- what Greta Gerwig imbues into her characters or her stories that makes them like consistently appealing for you? Well, I think that the that the universes are so profound, the nuance, the self-possession, mm-hmm. the imperfection mm-hmm. and in a way, the defiance and like the power, mm-hmm. but it's like not defiant because they want to be. Like mm-hmm. a lot of us are just defiant because like the world says that. It's like actually <laughs> no, we're just like these weirdos who don't. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. we're not even trying to be anything other than what we're trying to be than ourselves. And for some reason, people are reading that as defiant, but it's actually mm-hmm. just like authentic. I don't know. I I love her. Clearly. Okay, Christine. Ladybird. Is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quote? Well, I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. Okay. Take it away, Ladybird. Everybody says don't, everybody says don't, everybody says don't, it isn't right. Don't, it isn't nice. 
everybody says don't. Everybody is that says something don't. that you felt like you have been saddled with as well? The sense of like, oh, Rebecca, she's just always, she's just always pushing back. She's always, she's always being defiant. And you're like, I'm just being myself. Like, is that something that has been resonant with you as well? Well, in different ways. I don't think defiant in this film. I think people thought it was defiant that I made a film about myself, which I guess <laughs> is defiant in a way. <laughs> But I also feel like, you know, there are other things that have the film has been called and I'm just like, okay, like if that's Mm -hmm. how you feel, cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't feel that way, but if you feel that way, then I think that that's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if we normalize whatever that is, I'm down. Mm -hmm. You know, any I uh, reading um, interviews with you that I could find, there was, um, you know, every so often like the the notion like the concept of you as a filmmaker would come up like this your profession you would each time you'd remark upon like yeah like I'm I'm like film this is what I want to do this is my dream like there was there was just a sort of emphatic punctuation on like this is exactly what I want to do what I'm kind of meant to do and I wondered when did film start becoming a part of your life where you really started gravitating toward it and sort of living inside of it in a way that you wanted to to bring that into your own life and make things to put back out into the world as well yeah well I made my first film when I was 15 like I went to a film camp when I was 15 years old and I made Mm -hmm. my first short which is actually in the film for a little bit in Beba it's included and then I sort of I knew I wanted to be an artist and 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 I always loved film, but it just felt something so like something that was so unrealistic and unapproachable, especially when I went to college with a lot of like movie star kids. Mm. And it even felt that much more far away when I got mm. there. And it's interestingly enough. And then, you know, when I was trying to figure out again shortly after graduating, what is, you know, what am I, what do I love the most? What do I resonate yeah. with the most? What are, you know, what is something that I feel confident in that I know? Mm-hmm. And also something that I know will reach my communities and mm-hmm. as many communities as possible. And film kind of incorporates all of these things and it allows you to collaborate with so many amazing people and and mm-hmm. and it is a very accessible art form yeah and so that kind of helped guide me when i you know was having a conversation with my producer with my now producer of the of Beba film but then we were just you know friends in college mm-hmm. um and we were just like talking about the world and our own dreams and stuff mm-hmm. and and you know this came up and I, you know, watching, obviously, a very, a thing that becomes, like, starkly clear immediately is that, you know, a big part of your story is that you grew up in a one-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side with a family of five. And you were all in, and you were all in that unit together. And so I wondered, how did, was your experience of film at a, at a young and developing age, was that shared with your family? Since you're all very much in one place, like, were these movies you were watching, things like Poetic Justice and things like Do the Right Thing, like, especially the the older ones when you would have, I would imagine around the age might have been home when you saw them. Was that things that you were experiencing with your family? Yes. My father mm-hmm. used to bring a movie home every Friday. <laughs> and I never, our house was so small that I they couldn't really be PG or PG-13 about me. <laughs> like, I saw Pulp Fiction when it came out when I was five. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I, but that's a huge part of me being a filmmaker now because mm-hmm. my palette back then was, you know, like, Disney movies were not my favorite movies when I was five. Right. Maybe one of, like, 
if you asked me on my top three, I would name like a Guy Ritchie film. <laughs> like I'm not even 10 years old yet. And my favorite films are Pulp Fiction, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Disney's Aladdin. Yeah. <laughs> my Disney princess is Jasmine and my favorite director is Guy Ritchie. Literally though. So I feel like that added to it. That added to it. Yeah. Being able to see these other worlds on a regular basis. And it was also yeah. something that was really... It was so special to me because that was a mm. moment where everyone in my family could get along in this small apartment and kind of yeah. like escape into these different worlds. Mm-hmm. So it also meant a lot in that way. Or I would, you know, go to the $3 movie theater with my mom that was like mm-hmm. on 34th Street at the time. I don't remember where I don't remember where that one was. But there was also like a $5 one on like six blocks from my house. So, mm-hmm. you know, these were rituals and these yeah. very important rituals that were happening in my life. And so what I sort of connected with film and cinema the, are some of the most profound and beautiful moments in my life. We it might we were we were an arguing household. Like the fights happened out in the open. It wasn't like I'm gonna go talk to your mother. It was we're gonna fight at the dinner table <laughs> and then everybody's gonna be involved in the fight. And you know, if it started about me or my sister, we would it would it would always like crescendo to this point where then my parents would just start fighting and me and Riley would look at each other and be like, Are you still mad? And she'd be like, No. And we would just be like, <laughs> All right, we're gonna eat dinner. And they're like off on some other thing about their marriage. And but like the we didn't do a ton of stuff as a family. Like, you know, we had sports that the parents took us to and like mom made dad work in the yard. But yeah. like, but we watched movies together. Yeah. We would watch movies together and it was, it was, it yeah. was great shitty action movies. It was whatever yeah. Steven Seagal made that week and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And like, those movies are so dear to me now because those were like, that could have happened at the dinner table, but it was like, well, but it's movie night. So dad would lay down in front of the TV with his candy on his chest and we would sit up on the couch. And like, that was the most harmonious times I can think of with us all together, actually sharing an experience in our house was when we were watching movies. Literally same, Jordan. (laughs) Harmonious moments. Like we didn't go on family trips. Friday night was movie night. Yeah, I think I remember one trip we went on. It was like for my birthday, we went to Seattle and went to a Mariners game because I was really into baseball at the time. But like we didn't, the trips we took were to go to like softball trips for the weekend for me or my sister. Other than that, it was like they were living separate lives, my parents at home, or we were like sitting together and watching a movie. Yeah, same. The the only trip we went on, I think, that I can remember was, that I can remember in my, was when they took, when my dad took us to Disney World for my seventh birthday. (laughs) <laughs> and I just remember all of us coming back from that trip like, ooh, this is probably never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, this is, well, that was a one and done. Yeah. Glad we went all the way to Disney World. Yeah, exactly. Glad, glad we went to Disney World. <laughs> I, I love that you mentioned Pulp Fiction specifically because that was, I think, because I could always watch, my, my, my first movie memory is Hellraiser when I was like probably around three or five. But then like the only movie my parents were ever hesitant to let me watch was Pulp Fiction. And I think it was because of the gimp scene and they didn't really know how to broach that. But then I remember like I'd wanted to watch it. I was asking my mom if I could watch it. And she finally, because they would do Sunday grocery shopping and they would be gone for a couple hours. And when I could finally stay home by myself, I remember one time I my mom was like, you can watch Pulp Fiction while we're gone. If you have any questions about it, you're welcome to ask when we get back. Otherwise, go for it. And I was <laughs> Oh yeah, it was a it was a triumphant. How old are you? Ten. I was ten. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. 
We're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back with more Rebecca Hunt. And afterward, I will have one quick thing before I go about the movie on everybody's lips on Twitter, Barbie. Hal Loveland here with breaking news on a revolutionary form of entertainment, professional wrestling. For more, we go to our correspondent, Danielle Radford. Professional wrestling is the craze that's sweeping the nation, featuring fisticuffs and colorful costumes. But who can help us make sense of this world of body slams? Lindsay Kelk has the answer. Sources tell us of an amazing podcast called Tights and Fights, filled with discussions of the absurdity of professional wrestling, plus all the sincerity and hilarity that you could shake a stick at. Listen to the Tights and Fights podcast every week. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. And your old-timey radio. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just gotta share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm here talking with filmmaker Rebecca Hunt, whose debut feature, Beba, is a kind of documentary self-portrait of her and her family. She feels most seen by characters like Francis from 2012's Francis Ha and Justice from the 1993 movie Poetic Justice, which is what we are going to talk about a little bit right now. Tell me about Poetic Justice. Did you see that when you were young or was that when you came into later? You mentioned your hair is even yeah. still a living reference to to Janet as Justice. Yeah. I saw it when I was, I think I saw it when I was really, really young, but I don't remember. Like, because mm-hmm. I have cousins who were like, yeah, you've, saw, you've seen it. But then I saw it again when I was 13. Okay. And I was like, oh my God, Justice. <laughs> now you understand just why my head's not bowed. I don't have to shout or jump about or have to talk real loud. When you see me passing, it ought to make you proud. I say it's the click of my heels, the bend of my hair, the palm of my hand, the need for my care. I'm a woman phenomenally. I was also like 13. So like, obviously, like I was just like, she's so cool. She is so cool. Yeah, exactly. And she's, I still feel that way. And Janet Jackson is the coolest ever. And then like my aunt, it's my Angelo's in it, Tupac and like all of these legends. Regina oh, King, I'm pretty sure is in that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, I mean, legends. The nineties let black cinema stars be so many more things that I feel like we are only 
now returning to a time. We're only just like getting to a time where there is a, a, a multitude of blackness on screen that feels like it gets close. The way Janet Jackson could be the star that she should have been. The way, like the whole panoply of yeah, Wayne's like output. Like Lee, John Singleton. Yep. I mean, in terms of like Ice Cube. Wesley Snipes being one of the biggest fucking stars in the country. Blade, Eddie Murphy. Well, Blade, Blade levels. But Blade, wait, was Blade 2000? So. 98. Blade, 90, Blade is a 90, year before Blade the Matrix, 90. ladies and gentlemen, giving you Matrix style. Yes. I will I will stand on a rooftop and scream about Blade as a precursor to the possibility of the Matrix. Me too. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I, yeah, I love not the 90s in general because I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I was born in 1990. <laughs> so... But there is this sense that I feel of, you know, there were films like, you know, there was like the Spice Girls and then there was, you know, then there was Matilda Mm -hmm. and then and Poetic Justice and like, you know, all of these and Mookie and Nola Darling from Do the Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. Nola Darling is I was going to say Nola Darling can do the right thing, but it's Nola Darling from She's Gotta Have It. Mookie, (laughs) the right thing. Sorry, Spike. I love you so much. Um, (laughs) But like. Nola Darling is a revolutionary character. Yes. And so I feel like, but then I, but then I feel like when I was growing up sort of, especially like as a teenager and a preteen, I didn't see many films where I was reflected at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's why, you know, one of my cousins was like, you got to watch Poetic Justice. You kind of remind me of justice sometimes. Ah. Like, you know, I think in the 2000s, I, I don't really get the sense that, there were any, and I could be totally wrong. No, like, I, I, I think what we have in the 2000s acutely is like a nadir of culture <laughs> here in the States. I love this stuff. And and the further you go into it, the more it's like, wow, you have to dig do- so deep to find the meaning in all this stuff because it is buried underneath the layers of nightmare superficial bullshit that is keeping us prisoner at that time. So it makes it like a fascinating exercise to like unearth that stuff. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, in that sense, I feel like then it would make sense that I, you know, it's like Francis Ha, Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Francis Ha came out in what, 2012? 2012. I'm getting the confirmation of 2012. Thank you for producer Marissa. <laughs> so, yeah, then in that sense, it does make sense. But but it does make sense in general. It's also just like where we're at with cinema, where we're at with politics, yeah. where we're at with the world right now. There's so many dope directors female directors, directors of color, you know, just like there's more diversity now. So there's Mm -hmm. more diversity in story. And like there could be, you know, there's always room for much, much more. But I do think that there is something happening that's been happening for for a bit in terms Mm -hmm. of like nuance and complexity. Because I think about like Terrence Nance's film, An Oversimplification of Her Beauty, which changed my life. That also came Mm. out in 2012. Mm. You know, and that was a personal documentary. Well, th- I mean, and, and nobody can anticipate the world that their film is going to arrive in because mm-hmm. films don't get made in 15 minutes. Like even a movie that gets made in a timely fashion, it's like a two, it could be like a two year process. And that's like if things are going well. <laughs> and then you have you started making Beba in a different 
in a, you know, a, a world that certainly reflects realities that were always there, but things that have come gushing forth that were not made normal and mainstream as acceptable ways of behaving. <laughs> like we're in a we're in a maelstrom right now. And that maelstrom has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger over the course of you making this thing. And so like you you start your journey as filmmaker and then you work on this, work on this, work on this, and then this finally makes it into the world. Does the world available to you as a filmmaker now, how does it feel different than the world available to you as a filmmaker when you started making Beba? Well, I think that I can answer that in a lot of different ways. But like when I started making Beba and throughout the process of making Beba, like I've had I had three jobs at all, like three jobs plus this film. Right. Yeah. So like at any given time, I was working at two different restaurants and I was personal assisting. I had a fellowship at one point. So it was just like my fellowship. I could only work at one restaurant now. And I yep. still had Beba. And Beba was a, a constant throughout this entire process. So when I think about like, and also, you know, when I think about creating in general, a lot of that shit has to be quiet for me to, yeah, yeah. to like feel free and feel, especially with a film like Beba. But I think in general, in my creative process, like, I have to, there's a lot of things that I have to quiet mm -hmm. um, to, 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 to sort of begin to access the place I want to be within the creative process, which is mm -hmm. this place that feels like limitless and transcendent and expansive. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that. And that has to do with me. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know if this is answering your question at all, but now I feel like, like the access that I have, you know, I, when Tom Powers called me to tell us that we, that we got into a, that we would have our world premiere at Toronto International Film Festival, my response to him while I was crying and like literally just like vomiting <laughs> and crying yeah. was literally screening, crying, throwing up, but literally yeah, was, I just thought that this would play at a community theater in Detroit somewhere. Yeah. You know, and so um, I think the access now, it's like the film is distri being distributed by Neon. We have international distribution with Onyx Collective. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's had a really amazing festival run. Um, and some of the conversations I'm having with different people in the industry, I do think that there is... People are trying to create space for this stuff. And mm -hmm. clearly, you know, something's happening because this personal experimental documentary yeah. <laughs> is being distributed. And, and like, you know what I mean? So from the studio that brought you Parasite comes Beba. Yeah. Well, Neon is also just like so special like that. They're incredible. Yeah. That was my they were my like North Star. That was my dream. I was like, I'm going to shoot for the moon, which is Neon. <laughs> And I'll land in the stars, which is like Detroit, like you know, <laughs> yeah. cinema. And then I was able to do both because I actually was able to go to the Free Film Festival in Detroit, which was incredible, um, and play at a community cinema, Cinema Detroit. Yeah. Shout out to Cinema Detroit. Yeah, that was really special. That whole process, like Toronto, Neon, like mm -hmm. it's fucking dope. Not, not bad. Not bad, Rebecca. Congratulations. Yeah. So <laughs> my 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 way that I will like come around to the end of this is is another another little character set you mentioned was like you cited that you cited the big hitters of Star Wars, Leia, 
Luke, Han, Darth Vader. All of them. And I wanted to talk about, I wanted to mention sort of the Darth aspect of it in the sense of like the villain edit. Like, you know, you you have like, you know, perhaps a passing, perhaps an intense alignment with Darth Vader at points. And then here you are responsible for a work bearing your own name that features you. And you're like, how honest am I going to be about who I was at this time, at this time, at this time? And I wanted to hear from you about like making space for like a villain edit of yourself, perhaps in some ways being like there, there are the, like I remember like it just hit me in the chest when you talk about moving back um, to the apartment where your family still lives and being like, I try not to think about the fact that I took the bed that my mom sleeps in and now she's on the couch. And like I wanted to talk about embracing that honesty of a portrayal of oneself that's really hard knowing that it's going to be out there forever and being like I'm I'm part of this edit I'm part of this coming together and I want this here well yeah I think that that is the I mean definitely I was a part of the edit and a part of the writing and a part of the mm-hmm. choosing and a part of the filming you know yep I it was so like the bigger picture was to connect with people yeah. on an authentic level to start having conversations because the conversations that were happening around me, whether it was on the tension of New- in New York or in this country mm-hmm. or even yeah. within my family or with my friends, they weren't off- like it, there was they, they weren't those conversations didn't feel like there was space for connection or mm-hmm. space for authenticity. Mm-hmm. And in order to sort of throw this out, throw, throw something out there that would hopefully bring my life more authenticity Mm -hmm. and more, and, and, and more honest connection. Mm -hmm. I had to show that. Mm -hmm. And also there was something deep inside of me that understood that like all of us, like, that's the thing. It's like, why are we all lying? Yeah. We know that all of us have this. It's not even that, like, it's not that deep. Yeah, yeah. All of us have these really complex sides to us. Like, that's why when you said, who are the characters that you identify with? Mm-hmm. I identify with Princess Leia, Han Solo, <laughs> Darth Vader, like, and Luke Skywalker all mm-hmm. at the same time. I am all the elements of character archetype, God damn it. Equally, like, equally. But I think most human beings, like, archetypes can't really exist in the real world because that, yeah. and that's why they're archetypes. Mm-hmm. But as human beings, like there's things that I've done that have been b- really bad and really mm-hmm. shitty and horrible. Some of them are shown in the film. Mm-hmm. There's things that I've done that are amazing that I'm so proud of myself for that really sort of have built the compass of like my moral code. And mm-hmm. there's things that I've done that I am disgusted by. And there's mm-hmm. things that I've done that I am so secretly confident and profoundly proud of and it's just all of those exist at the same time at all times because i'm not none of us are perfect we're literally we we are made of infinite mass from Mm -hmm. like a multi-universes we don't even know what's happening we don't even know what's happening. No idea where we are. We're on a floating rock in the middle of like a, the multi-universe of vast nothingness. Like obviously all of these things are going to exist. So like, why not just stop lying? Yeah. You know, and just be more free and access more deeply our capacity to love and be loved. 
Rebecca, that is the best possible way I could have hoped to close this conversation with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jordan. Your energy is amazing, Jordan. I love it. Thank you. I listen, it's I an honor my for brain me. It's so works slower sometimes. <laughs> and I like there's certain things that I want to come back to, but I'm just like, we don't have time. Like I want to listen to certain things you said. When you're ready for a bonus episode about the resonance of '90s cinema. We are ready to have you back. This is it's a it's a privilege that I get to have these conversations with people who make stuff and put things out into the world. And Rebecca, congratulations on being not only the main character but the titular character today and going forward. Thank you for having me. I <laughs> loved it. Thank you again to Rebecca Hunt. Beba started screening in New York and L.A. this past weekend, and it will be expanding throughout the country. So check it out. It's it's. I have to believe it's it's kind of unlike anything else you've seen this year. It's it is a unique viewing experience. So get out there and, as we say always, support independent film, support small films, support new filmmakers. Uh, this is your responsibility as a movie fan. And now. We've got one quick thing before we go. We've talked about her a lot on today's episode. Pretty fair amount. Greta Gerwig, the writer and director of such hits as the aforementioned Francis Ha, Lady Bird, Little Women, and now, now, Barbie. The Barbie movie. And you know, people can say their things about IP, They can say their things about, like, Hollywood cashing in on titles, turning toys into movies. I, more than most anyone, will stump for the Transformers franchise, so I certainly don't have a problem with any of that. But Barbie, you know, it's, you kind of think about it, it strains credulity. You're like, how is this possible? How are we going to make a movie with any semblance of credibility out of Barbie? But again, I implore you to remember, this is a Greta Gerwig film. You know that Greta Gerwig did not go into that studio and present a pitch that was just like boilerplate, we're going to put Barbie in a bunch of fits and we'll send her to Malibu. Like it there's there's got to be there's got to be more here. I can't why the hell would Greta Gerwig pitch on Barbie unless she was like I have got a fucking idea, you guys. And she has done two right by us. With characters like those titular roles, like Lady Bird, like Francis, like the whole gang in Little Women. Saoirse Ronan would not continue to work with Greta Gerwig if she was not capable of giving you the Barbie prestige picture uh, you didn't think was possible. And this cast, it's like, it's like it actually, it's every time there's an announcement about Barbie and every time a, now the BTS photos have started rolling out, because it looks like they're shooting in, like, Venice. And there are photos now of Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, her, her Ken doll, in neon, lycra, spandex, pink, yellow, orange, blue, um, roller skating around. Excuse me, roller blading. Fact check. Roller blading around. Um... Every time you see a new image or hear a piece of casting, it just feels like it's actually just one long Twitter thread where people keep replying to each other with just absurd scenarios and that it's not actually real. Like, it's not actually true. Like, this, there isn't, 
there isn't a movie with Academy Award nominee Margot Robbie playing Barbie and Ryan Gosling as her Ken with America Ferreira there and Kate McKinnon and um, Emma Mackey, the one and only actress who I will accept your shitty jokes about every white woman looking like Margot Robbie. I'm sorry, Margot Robbie looks like Margot Robbie and Emma Mackey looks like Margot Robbie. That's that's who, that's the doppelganger situation. Issa Rae, Issa Rae is going to be there. Michael Sarah is going to be there. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Emerald Fennell, <laughs> writer and director of Promising Young Woman, coming back to Margot Robbie uh, in a reunion. She's going to appear in the movie. See, it is just, it's just a fantasy casting Twitter thread. But no, friends, it's real. Barbie's real. It's in production right now. Greta Gerwig is, as she does, dressing on theme to direct the movie. Uh, there have been BTS photos of her as well in a soft pink jumpsuit with matching shoes because Greta Gerwig's a bad bitch and she wears costumes to set. Um, this movie's coming in 2023. Hopefully we never stop getting a steady stream of uh, images and costumes leading all the way up to the release. Give me actually every minute of this movie in still frames before it comes out, and I will still feast on every minute when I see it live action because I think it's going to change our lives. I think if this this comes out in the in like the middle of 2023, well, look at that. Best Picture nominee potential 2024. Barbie. Greta Gerwig's Barbie. How big of a fuck you would that be to the Academy that like doesn't nominate women as directors? We're going to get Best Director, though, to Greta Gerwig. It wasn't going to be for Little Women, but it's going to be for Barbie. Let's keep the dream alive. Let's keep hoping um, for this better world. So that's that. That's that on Barbie for now. There will be another. There will be more quick things about this, I'm sure. And that is our show, in fact. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod, or you can send us an email at feelingscene at maximumfun.org. If you want to follow me, I am Jor Crew on Twitter. That's J-O-R-C-R-U. Our theme music is by Andrew Eben. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.